Welcome to the Financial Planners South Africa podcast, a show dedicated to driving the positive evolution of financial advice, specifically in South Africa. To join a global community of financial advisors, sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice, head to xyadvisor.com. Portfolio Metrics is thrilled to bring you this podcast in support of our common passion, people and the evolution of wealth management. Our global business links precision investment management to expert financial advice through partnerships and technology. Portfolio Metrics is an authorized financial services provider. AssetMap is a proud sponsor of this podcast. Are you looking for the next big thing in advisor technology? AssetMap is used by thousands of financial advisors to help create more meaningful conversations with clients. See for yourself how AssetMap is leading the next phase of financial advice delivery. Learn more at asset-map.com forward slash Louis for special listeners discount. This episode is proudly brought to you by Alan Gray. They say it's important to live for today. Although that might be true, we can't forget to plan for tomorrow. There's a lot of it left, after all. Alan Gray is an authorized financial services provider. Visit www.alangray.co.za to learn how we build long-term wealth for clients. Welcome to another episode of Financial Planners South Africa. Today, I have my business partner, mentor, and good friend, Marius Fenwick, with me. Marius, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, Louis, thank you. It's a privilege. Marius, our journey started almost 14 years ago, but at that stage, you were already quite involved and settled in financial planning. Give our listeners a bit of a background of how you made the career change into financial planning. Yeah, I think it goes back a while. Um, started off my career in mechanical design and the engineering field. Um, that progressed to where I had my own business in um, contract packing and the freezing operation and transport. So very capital intensive, very labor intensive. To cut a long story short, um, got a bit over eager, burnt with the, with the big boys and, and uh, made a statement at that stage saying that should I ever start a business again or be involved in business, um, I must certainly more rely on my own intellectual capital and not have something that's capital intensive or labor intensive. I also had a passion for, for working with people. I always enjoyed the, the people aspect of whatever I do. That's why I was always involved in marketing. And then it just so happened, like I think like many guys, um, I got enticed and approached by one of the insurance companies. And at that stage, it was Liberty Life and that approached me. Um, yeah, took a gamble, started started with them. And after a year, within that year, I realized that I'd rather go independent. I don't like the setup of the large of the large corporates. And after a year, I joined a practice as an independent. Yeah, I mean, what a start. We've had quite a few guests on that started with Liberty as a really good training ground. And what we see is that they get to a point where they're frustrated. You mentioned that you'd like... You know, to have a business where it's not capital intensive and it's not reliant on on other people. And if, talk us through how the financial services model works, where you're not too dependent on other people, and how you can start, you know, building your own intellectual capital and promote that to clients. Yeah, I think I think saying not being dependable on other people, other people, I think it's maybe a bit of a misconception. I think in our industry, you're very dependable on on, on other people. Um, I believe that. 
irrespective in what business you are, the success of a business is the strength of its, of its people. And something that I've always believed in, identify your own weak points um, and surround yourself with people that have stronger points in those areas that you have a weakness in. Um, maybe that's part why I approached you at the time. <laughs> I saw that I've got challenges on the IT side and where the industry is going. And I just thought, um, you know, where the future is heading towards uh, financial services, we need younger blood in. And yeah, I think that was a, that, that was a, a challenge. And I think it still is in our industry, particularly in South Africa, where uh, the average advisor is quite old. And it's a challenge getting young guys with talent, especially with you know, getting into the industry is, is difficult. Um, given the remuneration basis. Um, and I think that's why a lot of guys with, within the large corporations like the Liberties, the Sundoms and Old Mutuals um, become frustrated. Um, production, tra- production targets starting on zero every, every month. Uh, and also very early in my career in that first year, I realized I want to build a model where you rely on recurring income, which is basically mainly on the investment side. And that's why I've always focused more on the investment side and, and moved forward from there. You know, this, this problem with bringing in younger advisors and, and I think specifically non-white advisors to be more representative of South Africa is a dilemma that we have. How do you see us fixing the remuneration structure? You know, is it through giving them a loan to work back? Is it through providing a salary? Is it through providing clients? Like, What's your take on that that's both sustainable from a business as well as for the individual starting out? Yeah, I, th- I think if we look at the if you look at the ground roots, we look at where most people start with the insurance companies. That model's got to change there. You know, as long as you force people to well, not force people, but as long as your remuneration model is incentivized by production, um, and it's a, it's a tough business. I mean, no one wakes up in the morning shouting, "Who I want to go? And, I want to go and buy life insurance." So it's tough. You have to market and you have to go and find clients. I'd see they've got to move in. in in the same direction as attorneys and accountants. Have an internship, um, pay the guy minimum wage, give him the experience, um, let them then start uh, start working from that side. But unfortunately, the life insurance business models works on on products sold, administration fees, long, long-term upfront uh, front costs, and that's where they make their money. So until their business models don't change, it's going to be a challenge. Uh, for individuals like ourselves or for independents, um, well, we know that we that we said let's let's take all funds, stick it in the pot, and everyone shares equally. That's a model that I think that that can work very well as long as everyone is like-minded, has the same passion, and has the same goals. I think it could work well in a small team like ours. Uh, we know in a big team it's going to be a it's going to be a challenge, especially if you've got guys on the opposite side of the uh, of the pond where one one is a hard worker. Um, he's motivated, he wants to earn big income, the other guy's plodding along, just happy to survive, you know, then, then immediately going to have conflict. So it's tough, it's, it's difficult, um, but uh, I don't know what the ideal solution is. I think a lot of people have tried and no one has come up with the ideal solution. Yeah, this concept of building a good company culture and attracting like-minded people so that you don't have a few individuals, you know, taking the lion's share. I want to talk about kind of the culture when you moved away from Liberty and started um, your own practice, tell us about those early days. Like, what year was this, and and you know what was the setup like? Yes, so I joined Liberty at the end of 1997. I left them at the end of 1998, and I then joined a joined a practice um, as an independent. Um, 
within two years, uh, PSG bought in into us. Um, and that was the first time that I also had exposure to a larger corporation within an independent practice. Um, few things, I think expectations and, and uh, things that happened there, I wasn't too happy with that either. And I broke away and started my own, uh, my own practice. So I ran independent on my own, um, just with an assistant for about three years. Um, and then I was approached by, uh, by uh, at that time, Moors Roland, um, where they had a requirement for someone to come and look after their, after their business, basically. Um, during the time that I had my own practice, um, I had a small core of clients. I think I had 35 or 40 clients. And I've always had that kind of attitude, rather have a small, small amount of clients. Um, and look after them properly. And they, they become your source of income. They become your source of referral um, and recurring income. So that worked well. At the accounting practice, obviously there it's different. You work for, you work for shareholders um, and shareholders want profits. So the, pre- the pressure's on to, to continuously grow the book, which is not a problem. I mean, that's the basis of any business. Um, I eventually became a shareholder and tried to change the model to try and incentivize younger guys and people in admin staff to also become part of the larger circle. I mean, as advisors, um, and I think in any business like that, it, you know, if, whether it's the person's personal PA or whatever, as advisors, I mean, we're just as strong as our admin team. And I always felt it was unfair that the admin guys did a lot of the footwork, um, but basically just got a salary. Um, that, at that stage at the county firm, um, myself and the other advisors agreed to forfeit some of the income and incentivize the admin guys. So that's where the whole idea of creating a pot and sharing um, started. And yeah, I think the, the, the shareholders were happy because they didn't have to, to pay higher salaries. Um, the advisors were forfeiting and the admin, admin guys were happy. But at least that created an environment where um, you know, everyone was in the in the game. Everyone had 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 their foot in the in the water, and it, it just worked well. It gelled well. I want to highlight that piece you said you're only as strong as your administration backup or your support mm. team. B- before our discussion, we spent a little bit of time talking about training someone and how much time, other than you know financial investment, it actually takes to build someone's skill up. How long do you think it would take a administrator to become really proficient in what they do? And what do you think are the key things to look out for for someone maybe hiring an administrator or an assistant role in their business? Yeah, look, I think in our business, it's 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 a forever changing game and it's a forever learning game. You never stop learning, um, never stop stops changing, and I think the challenges. Um, you know, are there. So I think whoever you get involved in as an advisor or as an administrator must be willing to adapt and change. Um, you know, you've got, to, you've got to move with the times. If I look how the industry's changed since I started up to now, I mean, it's been a, it's been a 360 degree turn. It was probably a 720 degree turn. And I, I can't see that changing. You know, it's just evolving and, 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 and going from there. So I think the, the important thing is to, is to get like-minded people um, and a people's person, I think an uh, administrator must have a focus uh, for accuracy. Um, they must be a bit, not just a bit, but they must be very much focused on, on, on detail. And quite frankly, you know, if you're an advisor, you probably is some kind of a marketer as well. And generally, we are not very good at admin. So we need that back, that back to almost a little policeman to make sure that we stay in line. Um, so I think accuracy, attention to detail, and service, um, you know, they must be service orientated. 
um, you know, as soon as a client starts interacting with the admin side, um, they can make or break your business. So it's important that everyone has skill sets to, to, to interact with clients. And um, once again, you know, they should be the backbone of one's, one's business. The ideal is the advisor should set up the, the, the relationship, um, agree to the service, and from there for the day-to-day -day stuff, that must become the administrator's role, the liaison with the client, and taking, basically taking over your practice from the admin side and from a servicing side. Um, so crucial. I mean, I think they, they, they're absolutely crucial to, to, to the business. Yeah, like you mentioned at the beginning, that's your foundation and they need to be rewarded financially, but you also need to find this unique individual that has attention to detail, but also can, can work with people. I'm curious in, in the early days of, you know, being an independent, how did you bring in clients? You know, you spoke about building up to uh, an amount of about 40 clients, which compared to the insurers is quite low. How did you attract them? What was the value offering? And how did you build this uh, capacity to bring in clients? Because that's often something we see younger advisors struggle with. You know, this concept of, oh, I need to go and find clients, but clients are people my age. They don't necessarily fit my ideal mm -hmm. client. So talk us through how you approach that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a tough one. You know, if you, if you join the industry, I mean, Liberty had this thing called, a, almost like a Fortune 100 list. You know, so the day you walk in to start your training, you've got to take in a list with 100 names. And those names are normally made up of your friends and family and whatever. Um, I don't think I got a quarter through that list. I mean, I've never in my life made cold calls. I hate it. Um, so I've, I've always tried to set up a center of influence. Um, in the early days, I worked with an old um, small business development corporation that's now business partners. And they were a nice source of risk business. Um, now, you know, we, we spoke about investment side just now where, where I'd like to build a business. But I also found that the risk business, especially on the business insurance side, um, created a lot, of, a lot of opportunities. You know, talking to guys on the business um, insurance side in terms of buy and sells, etc., is less personal because it becomes a business decision and a business discussion. And I've always found that easier than a one-on-one -on -one where you can try and convince someone to do something that they probably don't really want to do. And from there, once that's in place, it evolves and it grows out um, and expands into um, investment planning, retirement planning, et cetera, et cetera. So from day one, I try to get my, 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 my centers of influence sorted out and then just rely on clients to refer. You know, I think one thing that in the, in the insurance industry always taught you is you don't walk away without getting a referral. Now, I've long stopped doing that, but that's not a bad thing to have. Um, to ask in a nice way of a client, you know, if you're happy with what I've done, um, do you know any of your friends or whatever that 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 um, that that's got the same requirement that you might have, or that's got a problem that we might be able to assist? You know, nowadays we've evolved in looking more at lifestyle planning, um, then financial planning, and then the financial advising with, within our business model, and I think that creates even more opportunities. You know, as soon as you can get into a discussion, doesn't matter what the discussion is. Somewhere there's a need and requirement, even if it's a psychological requirement, not a, not a financial requirement. Um, that builds a relationship and that relationship creates a platform for people to refer other clients to you. So quite often a client that doesn't got money but has got a, it's got a, strong, um, a strong influential uh, back, background or, or, or skill set um, is probably more worth than the client with a 5 or the 10 million rand. I think that's so true, Morris. Um, earlier this week, I spoke to a group of younger financial planners, and one of the slides I had was marketing equals relationships. 
because it is about creating these touch points and and finding a way to help someone and then ultimately see uh, you know financial fruit from that maybe over time you know how long do you think it should take an advisor to become profitable is it is it fair to be profitable in month 1 or 2 or you know does it take years to get there so it depends on your business model. I mean, if you look at the if you look at the life assurance again, um, you must be profitable for month one. If you're not, you're going to die because you're not gonna, you're not going to have an income. Mm. So the difference is: do you want to build a a short term cash flow or do you want to build a business? Um, our business is a people's business, um, and the only way to build a long term sustainable business is to build that relationship with people. And if your first introduction to a client is one of aggressive approaches and forced selling and you know sign on the dotted line kind of thing um, that's not going to be a long-term client and that client's not going to refer someone so it depends on your model but i think you can start building a a a a, a practice or your own your own line of business um, in a pretty short in a pretty short period of time but to build a sustainable long-term income takes time um, you know it can take you three four five years um, to to get to a point where you can say, listen, you know what, I'm not too, I'm not too stressed this month uh, because I know what I'm going to earn by the end of the month, like you do in the recurring income kind of in, in recurring income field. Um, we know advisors that've been in the industry for 15 years, and every month they wake up, they still don't know what they're going to earn into the month. You know that's a horrible business model, mainly focused on the risk side. But if you can if you can build your business, and quite often it's a matter of luck. If you can sign up. 10 clients with, 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 with a fair amount of assets, let's say 5 million plus assets, and maybe a retirement fund. Um, you know, then you've, got a, then you've got a business that you've got a fair amount of sustainable income um, on a, on, you know, over a very short period. You know, but it's, 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 it's difficult, especially for the younger guys. I think, as I mentioned to you right when you started as well, your biggest challenge as a young guy is to deal with the older guys with money. You know, a guy of 50, 55, 60 doesn't want to talk to a 21-year-old about his 20 million rand he's got his pension fund. So that, that's a huge ta- uh, challenge to the, to, to the younger guys. And the only way to overcome that is to get your skill set to the point where you can convince the guy, listen, I know what I'm talking about. For the young guys out there, you know, upskill as quick as you can, get your qualifications sorted out, get to the top of your game and convince the client, you, not convince the client, but by your actions and your advice, um, if you can show the clients you know more than they than they do and you're actually quite knowledgeable, that will lead to referrals. I completely agree with that. And I, I would add the fact that there's a team behind you and th- that you're not giving advice on your own, that you're saying, hey, I've partnered with uh, someone else, a mentor, someone that's going to supervise and oversee your advice, I think brings that sense of comfort for someone to say, okay, you might be the main contact person, but there's more than just one advisor behind them. How do you think advisors should be setting up these kind of mentor mentee roles? Like yeah. where, where do they find a mentor? I was very lucky to find you and to find Neil within the business, but for people that don't necessarily have that, where should they start looking? Yeah, I, I just want to go just want to go back one step. You know, it's it's nice having the team and stuff behind you, but the young guy that comes into the industry, doesn't matter if you're sitting in an office with 20 guys around you. You're on your own. You know, the, the current model, um, you're sitting next to your biggest opposition. Everyone's mm-hmm. fighting around the, around, the, uh, around the same pot for the same client. And that's why I hate that model. And that's, that's why we suggested quite early on to adopt the, call it the pot model, where everyone shares. doesn't matter who brings a client to the table. That also gives you the freedom to pull in other specialists um, to come assist you with a, with a client. 
Mm. So for young guys, I mean, try and get your center of influence. If you if you can't get into a practice where where um, you know where the guys have a similar kind of of, of approach, mm. um, look at joining an accounting firm. Look at joining attorneys that are client focused that got this need for financial planning inside a practice. There's some guys, individuals that that have built very successful businesses. Um, as a single guy inside the office of an attorney, as long as those individuals in the attorney firm also buy into the concept of financial planning. Um, you often find that in, a, in accounting practices, um, you know, the accountants tend to do that themselves with individual clients and not always doing the best job. Um, and they're not always that keen to, to refer clients, as, as we know. Um, but yeah, it comes back to the center of influence until you can get to a point where you're a group of advisors um, which which changes the ball game completely. Then you must get the culture where the guys work as a team. Try and get guys to focus and specialize in certain areas. Um, so if you see a client, he might have two or three or four advisors for that matter, each one dealing with his own area of expertise. And then he's got a team looking after him. And then you can start approaching the whole thing of a family office where you look at the total finan- financial affairs and risk parameters of a of individual and his family and the trust, et cetera, et cetera. Then you've got a business. You know, moving away from sitting next to your biggest competitor, I think is, is key and getting to a point where, you know, we almost remove a little bit of an ego and saying, okay, I know that you have a better skill set in terms of dealing with this specific client and using that relationship. Reflecting back on your journey, is there anything that you would change or you would do differently, um, specifically when it comes to building a business or building a client Oh, no, I think I, th- I think I was I was, I was fortunate. Um, I think I was I was lucky in many instances. Um, but I'm just I'm just grateful and that I that I adopted the idea of less clients um, with high income earlier on. Um, but there's nothing really that I would that I would that I would change. I'm I'm pretty happy the way things have turned out. Eh? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's uh, it's consistently working at it and servicing those clients. And you know, most of your relationships with clients has been for for decades. Why do you think that is? I think it's the old thing. People people buy people. You know, I think if you're honest with your clients, um, you tell them when something goes wrong and be honest with them, um, and you can build their trust and they can confide you in anything. And we find clients that have been clients for 10, 15 years, you know, at some point we find out you know, there's, there's investments or something in their lives uh, that's going on that we, that, that, that we never knew about and we thought we knew the clients. But I think it's very much a, a, um, a case of just building that relationship and, and reliability. You know, if a client wants something, um, you know, prop, off, offering the service. Um, I've never sold returns. Um, it's always always providing service and saying we had to, to sort you out, we had to look after your needs. Um, I think as soon as you start getting into the game where you you get a client by promising him a better return that he's received or lost, I think that that's that's a that's a loser's game. Um, you know that's going to work until you can do it until the next year when you can't. What happens then? You know, so it's very much that relationship building thing and where clients can pick up the phone and they know you're there. If you're not there, your assistant's there um, or your administrator, whoever. But yeah, it's just it's just what clients are comfortable with. It's the same as going to your doctor. I mean, why why have you got your family doctor for the last 10, 15 years? You don't change them every year. You know, so it's exactly the same thing. Um, it's just just building that relationship. Eh? Yeah, the communication channels. I think opening with clients and making sure that they feel comfortable reaching out to you is a is a key point. Where do you see this kind of balance between speed in terms of getting to someone and comprehensiveness? 
and guiding them to make decisions. Like for someone starting out or maybe even in the middle of their career, um, if you have more than 100 clients or 200 or 300 clients, how do you still manage that? I know you focused on building a smaller base mm-hmm. with a high touch point, but you know, where do you find that balance? Yeah, it's 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 you know I can't speak for the guys sitting with the with the two three four hundred and seven hundred clients. I just don't know how they do it. Um, there must be many of those clients that don't um, that 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 don't get serviced. I mean, even in in a small client base like mine, there are you know the bottom end of the clients don't get the optimal service like they should do. It, it's tough. I think in terms of how quickly do you get back to a client? I think it depends on the urgency. I think whenever a client, new or existing one, has a query, um, respond ASAP. I mean, I think response and, and, and accessibility. I mean, if I sit in front of the TV on a Friday night at 8 o'clock and a client phones accidentally even or sends me a message or WhatsApp or whatever, I'll answer him. And quite often they say, you don't have to answer now, you know, answer me on Monday. And I just send back, well, then don't ask the question now. I'd rather answer it now than I don't have to deal with it on a Monday morning. And keep your answer so, for Monday. Yeah, so I think it, it comes back to passion in the industry. Um, you know, if, if, if you enjoy what you're doing, you'll you'll be there for your clients. And it doesn't matter what day, what, what day it is or what time it is. And the main thing is just get back in time. Basically agree on when whatever the query was um, or what their requirement is to get that sorted out. And, and be honest with your clients. You know, if they ask you something you don't know, tell them I don't know. Um, but tell them I'll get the answer, get back to you within a day or two or three or whatever. Never lie to a client. Don't try and wing it and, and, and try and sound clever. Um, I mean, it's quite embarrassing having to go back and say, you know what, I was actually completely wrong. Um, so rather say I don't know and come back with the right answer. Um, and cl- clients don't always expect you to know. Your guessing in this industry is not a good strategy. No, uh, no. I think we've seen some examples where advisors just guessed the answers. Yeah. And um, you can maybe do that in an exam, but you can't yeah. do that in, no, in the, real life. The, the, problem if, if, the problem is if that guess gets put into practice. Mm. You know, if that, if that guess is implemented on, a, on an assumption and that insum- assumption turns out to be completely wrong, um, you know, that's the, that's the quickest way of losing a client. Maurice, you spoke about passion and I know that you have a passion for educating and sharing concepts and simplifying financial planning for the masses. Uh, You've been writing quite actively with MoneyWeb and writing a lot of content over the years and hopefully your book gets published as well in the the future. Where does this passion come from from and where have you seen the benefit from that? I think it it comes back from just, just wanting to help people. You know, if you're sitting and, and, and you can see someone is on a way to a, to a train smash um, and, it, and it's obvious, um, you know, I think one tries to intervene in a way that can, that, that, that can assist them. But also if I look at, okay, just look at close, close to family, you know, if we, we don't have to go look far, if you look to go and see where there's been a bit of a financial crisis in, in, in financial planning or due to the lack of financial planning. Um, so I'm, I'm quite passionate that people should start early enough and understand the, the effects and the power of something like compound interest, um, why it's important to protect your income, et cetera, et cetera, which we don't focus on that much, but I mean, we, we, we should. Um, so it's just, it's just a passion to make sure that people reach retirement age um, and they, they've got sufficient income just to carry on with their, you know, with their current lifestyle. And you know, there, there are way too many people that fail with that. Um, so yeah, to me, it's it's quite important that people, I think, realize and start planning as early as possible, um, 
and just show them, you know, it's not that difficult. It doesn't have to be complicated. And quite frankly, you don't have to start with 50% of your salary. Um, the sooner you start, the better, and the less you have to put, have to put away and get into that culture of, of, of saving. So it's just for people to be self, self-sufficient self and, and, and financially independent, um, especially when it comes to retirement. You know, a lot of people, <laughs> as you know, I mean, one of my favorite, favorite questions when I speak to a group is saying that, if you want 10,000 rand a month today, how much capital do you need? And just look at the answers. And even among educated groups, I mean, you know, 90% of the people get it wrong. They've got the complete wrong perception in terms of how much capital you actually need to get a fairly decent income. Are they underestimating it or overestimating? Well, they're overestimating what they can actually get from an investment. You know, so if you ask the question of the 10,000, know, some people say 500,000 rand, some say a million rand, and some say 5 million rand. It's okay, it's okay great, you're on the right path. <laughs> you, know, you don't need that much, but I mean, if that's your, if that's your ambition and you're planning and you're planning towards it, that's fantastic because you'll never be disappointed. But, um, you know, we get people that, you know, that, that, um, that, that retire and unfortunately you c- come across them too late in life. Um, that's going to have a requirement of X amount and, you know, they're going to need three, four times more than what they can actually what they're going to manage to accumulate over that time. And purely just because they either they had bad spending habits or they just didn't start um, uh, you know, saving and investing early enough. Yeah, it's that chicken or the egg. Hey, like yeah. Once they start uh, yeah. getting interested in finances, they start yeah. reading and they start actions, but it's the ones that are not yet interested that maybe yeah. need... Uh, I think also just on the education side, I mean, we know in South Africa in particular, I mean, we are total property bulls. You know, every, every person we speak to that's close to retirement or um, in retirement, you know, if you speak about their wealth, um, quite often a lot of their wealth come, came from, from historical property ownership and property sales. And everyone's still got that mindset, even youngsters, that, you know, buy property, as much property as going, that, that's, and quite often that becomes their, their main asset. Um, so I spend a fair amount of time saying, you know, property is not always the greatest, the greatest asset to own. Um, as a retirement vehicle, unless you own five or six of them, and someone else is paying off your bonds, and the day you retire, you've got no bonds. That's great. You know, then that that that's not that's not a bad way of thinking and approaching it. But um, in general, too many people view their, especially the main residence, as their as their as their main asset, and quite often that is their main asset, and that that's problematic because that asset's not going to provide you an income. Yeah, that lack of liquidity. I know you often get the question, should I be paying off my bond faster or should I be investing? Um, and you recently wrote an article for MoneyWeb as well. How do you explain the concepts and the trade-offs to clients? And maybe share with us your approach so that advi- other advisors can learn from that. Yeah, well, that's exactly what I was saying. You know, if you, uh, and, and I blame the press for that in a, in, in a big way. You know, quite often if you, historically over the years, um, you quite often saw the... Um, articles in, in press saying that whatever spare capital you've got, stick it in your bond. Kill your bond as quick as possible. That's fantastic. Now you end up in retirement, you've got a property that's paid for, but you've got no retirement provision. So it's got to be a balance. You know, it's in the last article I mentioned, you know, there's, there's no right or wrong answer. It depends on your circumstances. If you, if you belong to a pension fund or you have belonged to a pension fund for the last 20 years, you've always preserved the capital when you left the company and you're sitting there with you know, four, five, six times your, your, your annual income, then by all means, kill your bond. You know, take your extra 10,000 rand a month and stick it into your bond. If you don't have that, you've got to start thinking, hang on, how am I going to retire one day? Then rather allocate that or a large portion of it to, um, you know, to a retirement fund or to voluntary investments. But you have to build your, 
your income paying pot um, the day that you retire, um, apart from your, your 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 property. Census having a property that's paid for, you're living in a palace, but you haven't got money for food. It just doesn't make sense. So it's a matter of balance. Um, and as a rule of thumb, I, you know, I generally say to people, if you don't know what the circumstances are, do it half off. Stick fifty percent into investment and stick fifty percent in your bond. Um, but I'm not a believer of sticking everything into your bond. Kill your bad debt, your high your high interest debt, um, your credit cards, your overdrafts, etc. Kill that absolutely uh, before you before you pay off your bond because your bond rate should be much much lower than your let's call it your bad debt rate like your credit cards etc. Um, but it's a it's tough. But you you need to build that investment portfolio without a doubt. It's interesting because clients often say, I don't want to put every all my eggs in one basket. But when it comes to selecting a course of action, they pick the simplest route. Oh, I'm just going to settle my bond. I'm going to pay off this or I'm going to invest everything in this one fund. And what you're saying is that it's often just a combination of different things. Why do you think it is that they have this block against... You know, multiple avenues. Yeah, I, think, uh, I think the main thing when it comes to property is not understanding investments and returns. You know, so if, if you sit with people, and we've done it on many occasions, even with this board that we've got next to us here now, where people said, um, you know, they, that they fixated on property and said, okay, we'll explain why. And they said, give me an example. No, they recently sold their property for three and a half million rand. I said, that's fantastic. How long did you own the property? No, they owned it for 15 years or 20 years. What did you buy the property for? Uh, they bought it for 680,000 Rand or whatever. I so, yeah, that, that sounds like a great return. See, you know, from 680 to three, three and a half million Rand, that is a good return. They said, yeah, absolutely, it's a good return. So, okay, so let's, let's go back a step. Let's look at the acquisition costs, the maintenance costs, etc. I'm not talking about your, your main residence, I'm talking about an about a, about a, about a, um, investment property, but a, a, main, a main residence as well, because they quite often measure their wealth by their main, main residence. And once you start to strip out and say, right, the day you bought the property, you paid registration costs, you paid transfer costs. If you go look at your levies that you paid, et cetera. If you take all that into account, uh, then all of a sudden you're sitting with, with, with low single-digit uh, single returns. Even if you don't take that into account, it's highly unlikely that you could have a return that's double, double digits. You know, and, and, and people don't realize that. But as soon as you show them, saying, but that's what investments do. 680,000 Rand grows to more than 4 million Rand over this period. That's just pure, that's just pure math. I mean, it's not, it's not that property is that great. That's what it's supposed to do. That's a function of inflation. And once you show them that um, and say, but why did you rather look at something that's more liquid? Um, that's probably going to give you a much better return if you go look at historic returns of, of asset classes, and especially if you start diversifying globally. You know, then all of a sudden it starts making more sense and they, oh, we didn't realize this. We thought this is such a fantastic investment. And quite frankly, property, as I said, on many occasions, I mean, I own a few properties as well. But if investment property is not bonded and you've got someone else paying that bond and that interest and paying your investment, it's actually a terrible investment. Um, so if you, want to, if you want to buy property or if you've got a lump sum of 5 million rand or whatever and um, your decision is to go and buy rental properties, that's probably one of the worst decisions you can make. Wow, I think that's that's so valuable to hear. I think you know people have this concept of I know about compounding returns, but yet when I look at my finances, I don't always apply it. I don't think, oh, what should this have been, and what would have inflation have been, and just sometimes unpacking that and educating your client, you know, is very valuable. And also, what you're saying there is explaining what asset classes, what they should be expecting. 
No. When it comes to investing in equities, you know, locally or globally, how do you how do you explain what can clients expect from these portfolios in the future? Yeah, so I think we, we always start with the concept of investing. You know, the main objective of investing is to beat inflation. So if you don't beat inflation, then you might as well go and blow your blow your money. Go and buy what you want to buy in the future because it's just going to cost more. You're not going to be able to afford in the future. So main things start with inflation, and then you can start talking about the different asset classes and your expectation. And I think the general rule of thumb um, that, that I've always used, and it, it comes out pretty close to that, is if you start looking at equities, um, you can expect around about 7% above inflation. If you look at a high equity fund, 5% above inflation, low equity fund, about 3% above inflation. And if you go back historically, it doesn't matter if it's on South African soil or, 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 the, or the global markets, it comes down pretty much to that. You know, so then it gets back to clients, okay, right, we know what we can expect over a long term, and it's not a one or a three year, we're talking about seven, eight, nine, ten year kind of returns. Um, how much return do you actually need to reach your objective? So the main discussion goes around, what's your objective, how much income would you require at retirement, should you retire today, you know, you know, you know the old calculation. Do the forecast with inflation and say, right, in the future you're going to need 30 million rand. Starting today, what's your affordability? Um, either what's your affordability or how much should you start putting away at a certain return? And then go through the risk analysis and determine, can you actually handle this volatility? Um, and then it becomes a discussion telling a person, you know, your, your risk profile is such that, that you can't handle this volatility. You've got to go for a much more conservative portfolio. So you've got two options. Either you've got to put away more, have you got the affordability? No, we can't. Then the other option is, well, you've got no choice. You've got to take on more risk. And then start the discussion around that why they've got to take on more risk to reach the objective, what they can expect, and just to just to basically chill over the time, not look at your investments. I think that's one of the you know one of the biggest mistakes too many investors make is um, you know looking at your 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 fund value or investment value on a daily basis. I mean that's going to drive you insane, and it's going to drive your advisor insane. <laughs> yeah, also logging logging in and looking at your own portfolio. Yeah, Maurice, do you think advisors lose the value of money dealing with such large numbers you know maybe even in the beginning of your career when you're dealing with millions and look, you look at your own budget yeah. and it's easy to spend um, look, look i think it's, it's 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 difficult i think it can very easily become depressing you know because you do deal with clients with portfolios you look at total asset value quite often with over 100 million rand um, I think it, it should actually be incentive to show you, but hang on, you know, it's achievable and you can actually do it. And quite frankly, in our industry, it can. You know, I think it's one of the industries that, that, that um, can be highly financially rewarding. Um, but it, it, it's difficult. You've got to stand back and you've got to, you've, you've, you've got to almost float above the earth and look down on it and say, you know, we've, we've, got, to, we've got to do it at, arm, at arm's length distance. And see it as a commodity. Just see it as, listen, we're talking about a concept and we're talking figures. Um, don't drive away and then say, just like, I wish I drove the Porsche like that car or live in this mansion with a sea view. Um, you know, that's just going to, going to depress yourself. Um, you know, on, the, on that side, I think it's important to also portray yourself to your client as if you deal with these kind of clients on a daily basis. Even if it's your biggest client, is your only one that's sitting with, even if, if it's a 30 million rand client, that's your biggest client. Um, I don't think you should always let, you should at any time let the client know, listen, you're his biggest client, you're feeling intimidated by it. Um, you know, you're there to do a job, and it's just it's figures. It's just it's just figures. Um, else, you are going to lead a very depressing life. <laughs> what do you think is the biggest lesson that you've learned from your clients? 
Yeah, that's a tough one. Well, live life now. You know, as our as our um, as our motto states. Um, I think a lot of clients, not just clients, I think as individuals, we always have this future plan of something we want to do someday. And a lot of our financial planning goes towards, you know, I want to retire independent and I don't want to battle or whatever. Um, and they do start accumulating wealth that they can actually enjoy after retirement. And too many times have we seen that life happens and they can't do that. They're sitting with all the wealth and all the assets, um, but they've never really had the time to, to enjoy it or they never really took the time to enjoy it. They had the time, but they never took it because they want to save that for the day that retired. Um, and unfortunately, as, as people get older, um, as I said, life happens and, and medical conditions occur, um, family tragedies happen, etc. And yeah, so live your life for today. Um, plan accordingly. Don't go and blow all your money today, but don't extend things for tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, or 30 years down the line. Um, have a plan that you enjoy the fruits of your hard earnings and and we yet to enjoy life, eh? Um, yeah. I think that's spot on. And it's often difficult for clients to wear two hats, to say, I need to save as much as possible, but at the same time, I need to enjoy my money. Or even shifting from a 30 or 40 year time span of accumulating money to actually enjoying money. Yeah, also, also clients, and, 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 it's a, and it's a parental thing, clients worry too much about their children. You know, so I must probably get shot down for this. But quite often you you know you're sitting with a client with 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 substantial wealth, but they don't want to spend any of it because this is actually their children's money. No, it's not. It's your money. Someday it will become your children's money. But at least now it's like one of my clients that were flying to was flying to Canada economic class. I said, well, why on earth are you doing it? You've got the wealth fly first class. You know, deep seventies. Why are you flying economic class and getting out that side? And you need physiotherapy. Um, you know, so it's extra sixty thousand rand, and it was a grudge buy. But now if she goes, she flies first class. And we had a chat with the children, whatever, and I think that's also the important thing if you deal with, 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 with high net with individuals, um, and it's a, it's a tight family fit, uh, discuss, discuss the you know, discussions with the children, get their buy-in so they can back you up on that as well. And quite often the children say, you know, it's their money, it's not our money. And I think parents should realize that. Um, kids don't always want your money. Some kids do. Um, but kids don't always rely on, on, on your wealth to, you know, to fall on them um, over, over a short period. So, yeah, absolutely. So unpacking those assumptions, saying, okay, you, <laughs> you expect your children to need this money, but maybe they just want you to yeah. spend it. And, you know, at some point giving them the p permission to do that. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. But just to, just to get their mindset is that, you know, if, you, if you're drawing down – Two percent of your wealth um, on on an annual basis, and you are seventy five or seventy six year old. Um, now you don't want to go on an overseas trip because you know that this is actually your children's money. Um, as I say, draw five percent. You know um, you can still you can still enjoy your life um, and get decent returns and leave your and leave your children a legacy that that will be um, that will be quite substantial. Um, but yeah, as I say, just too often. And to say it's a parental thing, we can't we can't tell parents not to do that. But I think it's our, our responsibility to tell to tell the people, listen, don't worry, <laughs> there's more than enough. You know, if if it starts getting to the point where it's not enough, we most certainly will tell you. I know you also have a strong opinion on on clients helping their children and giving away too much assets. 
how do you get them to a point where you know they let go of some of the money but not too much of it yeah it's tough um you know and, and quite often when that happens it's it's pressure from the children's side you know as parents we've got to you know we've got the option how you raise your kids and if it was always a matter of an expectation and just giving um becomes very difficult to stop doing that when the children are adults and i mean we've we know that if you look at especially with our trusts and stuff involved um if the parents pass away and that money passes on to the children by the second generation that money's gone you know so it 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 it's it's unfortunate there's nothing that we can do about that that's a parental thing and you've just got to you know have the discipline not to you know as i said parents want to give their children whatever they can but there's a fine line of giving them sufficient um but giving them the the lessons of life and the education is a much bigger give than the physical branded sense um so it's just a matter of of i think how you raise your children and how they how they respect money and what you how hard you've worked for that money yeah your your family ethos and your dynamics within your family you mentioned oftentimes it's the children that require that money and this week i heard of an advisor that helped a client get their parents to sign a commitment um in terms of the amount of money that they will leave them in their estate and include that in their financial planning uh, i'm curious to hear your views around that yeah no look at that that's you know it's yeah it it comes back to the point that i made early on you know the it's the parents money you know i don't think children should have any entitlement to to to, to money and by nature children do have it i mean i like, look at my, my personal circumstances as well when you do estate planning um i'm in a second marriage etc and i and i believe that whenever i change anything on my on my estate planning i discuss it with my children or adults as well and you can quite quickly realize that there probably are some other expectations to what your wishes are and i think if you look at the community i think the global community i mean there there are a lot of second marriages out there and i think that particular becomes a becomes quite a challenge when it comes to the planning so it's not just with with um with expectation of 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 children and leaving a you know when there's a second family involved or uh, you know it it becomes even more complicated but you are to to get the to get the parents to commit to something you know what then go and discuss with the parents and say to them listen or if insurable I'll take out life insurance on your on your name I'll pay the premium and that will be part of my inheritance um that's fine you know if if you if your parents are happy with that um if you as a child want to go that route you know that's your prerogative but I think it's grossly unfair to expect your parents to um to to get me reach that commitment if my children approach me with that kind of request I'll tell them to take out <laughs> Yeah, I think what came to mind for me was controlling the things you can control and you have no control over them changing the world tomorrow. Um but at the same time like you said there's other practical ways. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned quite a few times now how you've applied some of your own life experiences to you know what's happening with clients or how that's improved your financial planning. For someone that hasn't had those life experiences, how do we how do we share this in our community with financial planners? um or is it just through stories like we're doing now i think there's a lot of there's a lot of case studies and there's a lot of stories and i think in the larger financial planning community i mean you'll you'll get a lot of stories you know as soon as you start chatting to to a few guys everyone's got a good or bad and a you won't believe kind of story and you know one should sit down and actually almost almost run a case study um and also when you do planning for a family especially when it's complex you know 
get the get the guys around a get the guys around a desk and 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 ask opinions. Um, you know, there's always something that creeps out that one does not plan for, and there's always something that you thought um, might happen or doesn't happen. You know, and 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 actually, the opposite turns out to be true. So. Um, it's 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 tough for guys out there that don't that didn't have experience, um, haven't experienced that in the past. Um, I think just go and look at case studies. Eh? I think there's a lot of literature and stuff out there, a lot of articles being written. Um, but yeah, it's not 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 that simple. <laughs> yeah, I think we sometimes we oversimplify financial planning, or we get stuck in the details, trying to predict everything, and just saying, you know, we can plan for what we know. Let's work with this. And when things pop up, we'll still be there. Like you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, it's about relationships. Yeah. It's about having a clear channel of communication, getting back to clients in a timeless manner and being there for them yeah. and working through this. And I think I, th I think we often try to overcomplicate things, you know, like the advisor you mentioned early on where, you know, requesting a, a, a um, the parents to make a commitment or whatever. You know, my approach to that would be, listen, let's leave that out. Your financial planning is part of your financial affairs, your cash flow, etc. If you do get that in the future, that's a bonus. So let's go and park that, and let's go and see what your, you know, what your situation is going to be, and you've got to manage around that and create your expectations around that because that's no guarantee. You know, it's you, you can write it into agreement. Guess what? Um, that agreement's gonna it's, it's gonna be worth squat if, if for some uh, for some reason your parents lose the investment. Mm. Um, so don't 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 plan around a, a a a dream of the future of something that might happen. Uh, work with the facts. What's available capital now? What can you put away? And that's where you build your financial planning around. Mm. Whatever you get from your parents. Um, yeah, it's, I think it's maybe used as a quick fix to yeah. say we don't have enough resources, but hey, there's yeah. there's a family member no, that can you know, help talking, out. Talking about family members, I get from 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 my married family. Um, typical example is that um, only son um, relied on his parents' wealth, and they had wealth. Um, the mom blew the money a bit. She had a bit of a gambling issue, and he relied on the property that was worth like six million rand that will that will come to him. To cut the long story short, um, she ran out of money. She she became a bit dimensional, and she sold the property with use of fractory right to someone for a couple of hundred thousand rand. Um, so, you know, he's now turning 50-ish. Um, the property is gone. He's got no recourse to the guy that bought it. So there you had a plan of 6 million rand in your, you know, in your, in your back pocket um, as, a, as a retirement vehicle. And um, now he's got squat. You know, so even as a single child, don't rely on what your parents at some stage promised you that, will, uh, that you get all what you just expected that's going to come to you. I think in this case it was a promise, but um, she just couldn't remember, and um, or circumstances were just such that you know that turned out quite nasty. As a as an only child, I'll be sure to apply <laughs> the thinking, and uh, hopefully my parents are listening to this as well. Maurice, how do you see the future of financial planning? Uh, what what will stay the same ten years, twenty years from now, and what do you see changing? The biggest scheme of things. Yeah, I think what will be this be the same. I think especially especially over the next ten years, I can't see the the industry changing in terms of how they pull people into the industry, unless some um, big independent advisory practices um, start a practice to 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 professionalize the 
the um, the industry in terms of getting guys in, how you remunerate them, how you train them, etc. As long as the big insurance companies are going to be the main source of attracting guys to the industry, that's not going to change because that's based on their business model. In terms of the servicing model to clients, um, I think it's going to move, and we've seen a big shift over the last five, six years. It's going to be very much more a service of offering a holistic service in terms of, of, of planning, um, getting involved in much more just than financial affairs of, of, of clients. Um, and in many cases, I think financial advisors are becoming the confidants of, of, you know, of, of, of many clients. Um, so I seeing getting involved much more in the financial lives of clients, but just not, and, and, and probably shifting towards fee-based, fee-based kind of services. Um, I think any practice that's not seriously considering moving towards um, a, a some form of fee uh, a fee paid service, I think they are going to probably come a bit unstuck in ten and certainly in twenty years time. But things happen so quick, and you know, in twenty years time, who knows? You know, it's, <laughs> yeah, I, I can't even comprehend to think what it's going to be like. Um, just the you know just the advancement of technology. What we're doing, how we deal with clients, and the thing we start to start to include and add to our to our you know the arrow to the quiver um, to you know, to service our clients. Um, so I think the guys, are, I think the, I, I personally think the the industry is going to become much more uh, more professional um, on the independent side. I can see some of the large insurance companies already moving also to holistic planning, financial planning, etc. I don't know how they cost it into their product offering. I think it's still a matter of let's do the the life planning, but you still need this endowment to to reach your goals, kind of thing. Um, I, I think there is a mind shift, uh, but it's happening slowly. But you know, the, the quicker that happens, the, the the quicker the industry will become will become professionalized. Um, but yeah, I think there's big changes on the horizon um, and good changes. I think uh, necessary changes. It points to your earlier comment saying that you know we should be lifelong learners. These are things that. We're going to be including in our business. It's ways of dealing with clients. It's building right. more skills and and yeah, yeah. just incorporating that. I saw a comment that and don't ask me who made it um, that said that um, the future is not about your 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 qualifications or what you know. It's what you don't know and your ability to relearn. In other words, if you're an old guy, um, you're stuck in your old ways. You've got a problem. Um, you know, you, you've got to have the ability to identify these these new challenges and new things to learn, and your ability to relearn and and reskill yourself. And I think in our industry, I think that's very that's very appropriate. Um, we could have to continuously upskill and reskill. Um, else, you could fall behind, eh? And yeah. it happens. It happens quick. Yeah, change is hard, and that's why not everyone can tackle it. Yeah, you know, especially if changes happens like five times a week, like in our <laughs> practice. <laughs> Thank you for enduring with uh, our constant change. And uh, I think it's it's kept you young at heart as well. And yeah, thank you, Morris. It's been a pleasure to have you here today. And thank you for your partnership and your mentorship. Uh, it's really, it's meant the world to me. Um, so just from a personal side, and thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. Much appreciated. Thanks, Lou.